Hello, I'm Abigailia Shimon. I'm a stand-up comedian and a yoga instructor. And this is just a simple wellness podcast. I get people from all walks of life and I ask them for one piece of advice. No dogma, no agenda. I just want to know how to live the best life. Welcome to Namaste Bitches. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 12 of Namaste Bitches. I changed the beginning. I hope you liked it. I'm going to be fooling around and changing it a lot because quite frankly I'm tired of the classical music. But uh, welcome. On this episode we have Professor Sophie Scott. She's a cognitive neuroscientist. We talk a lot about the science of laughter. She's done a lot of TED Talks. Um, They're up on YouTube. I'll put some of them in the show notes, but I really suggest you go and look at those as well. Ah, This conversation was so exciting, so let's just get right into it. Here is Professor Sophie Scott. All right, so we're uh, obviously recording now because I'm in my... uh, (laughs) recording voice and it's professor sophie scott it is yeah very aging yeah professor you're the first professor i've ever had on the on the show very exciting because i just right now i'm at a point it's still a pretty new podcast so i have people i know so it's a lot of yoga instructors and a lot of comedians so very exciting for me so uh professor sophie scott uh what is your piece of advice uh, my advice would be you can't always uh, control events, but you can control your reaction to things that happen. Very good. I like that. Um, so what, like, is there a situation that's come up recently that, you, that you've been reminded about that? Uh, I have had a couple of bumps in the road for career-wise and health-wise over the past couple of years, and it has been really helpful to remember that because, you know, the, the, you can't stop these things from happening to you, but you can affect how it plays out by how you choose to deal with it i find so how when things come up in your life that uh you can't control how what's the process that you go through to deal with it what i try and work out is something active i can do something i can actually even if to be perfectly honest it's just some kind of diversionary tactic so i'm doing something Mm -hmm. but i'm if i've got something i can do then i feel like i'm at least doing something I'm not just waiting for things to play out you know um so I had a problem with my hearing last year and I (laughs) took to like an insane regime of exercise because I'd read somewhere that people who run have got better hearing and I thought well you know (laughs) it's worth a try and but and and it did actually help it gave me something to think about that wasn't the hearing problem yeah it was in it and it's it that that's a it's a silly example but not just you know, but there I kind of made up a reason to do something that would probably be not a bad idea anyway. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, I've we were talking before. I've kind of started running in the last couple of years, and I almost wonder if it's damaged my hearing because of the loud music I listen to while I run. <laughs> I, I well, dose is the bottom line. It, it, the, the more loud stuff you listen to over time, the, the worse it is. But probably the I mean empirically. Your hearing will be better if you run because your hearing is very dependent on your cardiovascular fitness. Really, the ears basically. I didn't realize yeah, it, it was connected. It's it's completely connected, and your your ear is basically a battery. Uh, that's how it turns movement into an electrical signal that your that your brain can deal with. It's got moving parts, and it needs to actually maintain an electrical charge within your ear to, to make it work at all. So 
the better your cardiovascular health, the better your hearing will actually be because you are giving it the best possible amount of energy for mm-hmm. it to work. And I was listening to one of your TED Talks. People actually, does everyone start to lose their hearing a little bit after 40? Yes. Yes, they do. Um, certainly in the modern world, in the Western world, there's an argument that says, um, actually, if we lived in the kind of auditory environments we grew up in, then, you know, so I mean, we evolved in, then actually that probably isn't true. So because the sort of natural world doesn't contain very many loud sounds, whereas a modern environment, even if you don't work directly with things that are noisy like in a factory you can still be exposed to a lot of loud sounds Mm -hmm. um what that means in practice is that all of us as in the west will show a decline in our hearing after the age of 40 but you can also find that exacerbated by things like career so the biggest predictor of of hearing loss is actually your job if you work in a factory or you work with drills and you don't take good action to protect your hearing then you are at more risk Mm -hmm. Interesting. And tell, what exactly are you a professor of? <laughs> tell the people of, of the listening world. I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and that's uh, uh, basically kind of relating um, human brains to human cognition and behavior. So I'm interested particularly in how, how our brains deal with communication. So what we're doing right now. You know, I'm talking, you're understanding me, we're conducting a conversation. There's a huge amount of stuff we're actually having to do to make that possible. And I'm interested in how our brains actually achieve all that. And has most of your research recently been on laughter and communication? We've been doing a lot more on laughter. I mean, not intentionally. Uh, I didn't set out to become a professor of mirth. um, (laughs) Please have business cards that say that. Um, I got, I've been working on vocal expressions of emotion for, I mean, you know, ages, at least 20 years. And I was just very struck that we were always, always working with very negative emotions. So all the work, all the literature is on things like fear and anger and disgust. And I looked into it in a bit more detail and it turned out that there had been the suggestion that there actually, there could be other really meaningful emotions out there. Um, that more more positive so I started looking more into that and as soon as you start looking at positive emotions laughter just runs away from you as being a very very uh, it's, it's almost like it's hiding in plain sight it's everywhere mm. it's, it's universally recognised it's found in very similar situations wherever you are in the world and it has it's doing almost everything we think it's not doing if you actually ask people about, about laughter so um it became unintentionally it's become quite a big part of our work simply because it is very interesting and also it turns out there's very very little research into it why don't you think people have researched it thus far i think there's a couple of reasons i think first of all it seems really stupid it seems like a silly thing to study it's like saying i'm i'm studying why people like glitter um although that actually would be quite interesting um but it it sort of feels like a really trivial stupid thing in fact i had one of my colleagues i don't know who it was but took a whole pile of paper we were doing a study of audiences laughing and they took all the consent forms out of the printer and wrote this pile of rubbish will be thrown away if not collected based on the nature of the material and they asterisk that and then at the bottom they were asterisk is this science and the only thing that was not scientific about it, or may, might not have seemed scientific about it, was it was a study of laughter. Everything else was completely bog standard. So I think it does sort of set off a really, oh, that's just a stupid thing to study, like a trivial, you're letting us all down with your trivial subject. The other thing that isn't often talked about with laughter, but which you'll be more familiar with as somebody who works with it, is actually 
it's very hard to study because it can be very hard to make people laugh unless they want to. So it, as a behaviour, it's not something you can just get people to admit and then look at how they're doing it. People are very, uh, very nuanced, very sensitive to how and when and where they laugh. So actually, it's not just... Sometimes I think it seems trivial to people. I think it's actually, actually also difficult to study. Well, there's something you said in one of your TED Talks, which I'll link to in the show notes and put on the uh, Facebook group, uh, Namaste Bitches Podcast. Uh, but um, that laughter, people don't, aren't laughing at jokes. They're laughing with each other. Wait, I'm saying it wrong, but how, how did you say it? People don't... Well, if you ask people, when do you laugh? They'll talk about jokes and humour. Yeah. That's what adult humans think they laugh at. And they do. I'm not saying people don't laugh at jokes and humour. But in fact, where you find most of their laughter, like if you just sat down and followed somebody all day and counted when and where they're laughing, they laugh most commonly in conversation with other people. So it's a social behaviour. See, you said that, and as soon as I saw you said that, I just I was like, and my career is futile. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think it is. I think actually, um, as I say, obviously we do we do mark humour with that we like with laughter, and mm. it's not false or fake laughter. It's very genuinely meant a lot of the time. Um, but there's an argument that says we've kind of brought the two things together. So it seems that laughter is older than humans. It's a mammal behaviour. We're not the only animals that laugh, and wherever. Really, the sky's the limit because we haven't been looking for it in other mammals. But wherever we do look for it, we find something that looks like laughter. Mm -hmm. In contrast, humour seems to be something that's specific to humans. And as far as we can see, as long as we've had language, we've had humour. Now, you're reliant here on where you find examples of writing. But wherever you find examples of writing you find examples of humour. So there are you know, ancient Egyptian papyruses that have got jokes on them. Mm-hmm. So it does seem that, um, and you know, the Romans wrote whole books about it. It's it, it's not something that's uh, is a recent invention, probably humour. So what you what you've got is perhaps a more modern thing, which is humour, which we show a response to, and perhaps it's quite a late acquired meeting of the two, but we show a response to laugh to humour with laughter. But that they've also got other worlds, so you can find things extremely humorous and not laugh at them. And you can find yourself laughing in situations which have got nothing to do with humour whatsoever. There's like a you know, space in the Venn diagram where the two intersect. Mm-hmm. But they've also got different lives. And I think when you're on stage as a comedian, then I suspect what's happening, one of the things I'm interested in, is that actually you're, you're using both of those things. You're using humour, but you're also using a lot of that sort of social... So social use of laughter. Yeah. Um, like venues will try and cram people in and make set up, hopefully set up a space such that people are more likely to laugh. Yeah. But I'm also interested really in how much of a, how much of what you're doing as a comedian on stage actually is like a weird conversation where one person's talking in the audience and one other large group of people are laughing. Right. But it's like a kind of strange distortion of a normal place where you'd find laughter where actually it would be, there'd be more of a two and fourth. It's like a, a strange, weird version of a conversation. Well, it does kind of make sense to me of why crowd work works, especially if you're doing jokes and they aren't reaching the audience. If you just break that and start talking to them because then it does become a real conversation. Um, and it, it also kind of made me wonder if, because you talked about how people laugh they have more of a connection with laughter with people they know and because it means more. So if why people who are quite frankly more famous uh, 
than me, believe it or not, such a thing. But there's sometimes there's criticism that once you reach a certain level of comedy fame, you, your writing stops being as strong, but everyone keeps laughing. And if it's just because everyone knows, like, I think Louis C.K. is a great comedian, but everyone knows who Louis C.K. is. So when you go, you're going to see someone you know. It's not just a, like, random night at a comedy club. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think um, it, it's, an, it's a very strong finding in the sort of the, the laughter literature that you laugh more with when you're with other people, but much, much more if you know them and, and if you like them. And that kind of familiarity is, is something we don't often talk about, about comedy, but it really does depend on it. And it does place a lot more barriers in the way of somebody who is unfamiliar and perhaps might have other things about them that are socially more distancing to somebody in the audience or they perceive it to be that way. I mean, the audience member perceives it to be that way that make that familiarity harder to, to get past. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very struck and I went to see Seinfeld when he was at the O2 um, about five years ago in London. I thought, God, that's a terrible venue, but I really want to go. Yeah. So I took myself along on my own. And uh, it's like worst possible venue for laughter. It's a terrible space. I was sitting, you know, surrounded by total strangers. But when he came out... There was just wild, delirious cheering, you know, because we're all just like, oh, it's you, hooray. And then he did a brief introduction and then made a very funny joke, implying he was leaving immediately. Everyone just laughed helplessly because that's what we'd come for. Mm-hmm. You know, there was this kind of relief. Oh, it's going to be all right. You know, he's going to be funny. And this, actually, we've done Now we've got the thing going. It was palpable change in the room. It was very, very interesting. And... You see that very often if somebody's got familiarity on their side. If you haven't got familiarity, sorry, if you haven't got familiarity on your side, then you've got to get, you know, somehow get to that energy without that help. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think of Sigmund Freud's book on comedy and laughter? <laughs> I've read it twice. I can't quote anything from it. It is the most dense thing I've ever read. Um, one of the problems with, and I say this as a behavioural scientist and as someone with a training in psychology, all psychological theories of humour I think are wrong because they always try to bring it down to one thing. Mm. And they try to say, well, it's this, it's a, it's a violation of expectations or it's some sort of um, a sense of relief because something's been resolved uh, or it's a sense of unexpe- something's unexpected has occurred. And you can always think of something that people laugh at that, that, that that's not true of. And... It's, it's I think almost kind of missing the point that by the time you're analysing why do people find something funny, you might as well say why do people like that piece of music or not. It, it becomes a much more personal, aesthetic choice, really. And, and we, psychology rarely tries to explain why people like the sort of music they do. Why would we imagine we could come up with one theory of why everyone finds something funny? And, of course, the, the opposite is also true in that there's no one thing that you can find over time and over place that everybody finds funny. So that ancient Egyptian joke about, it's sort of, um, how do you get the pharaoh to go fishing? Oh my gosh. You dress young women up in fishing nets and push them into a river or something. Actually, I may, I may have made that funnier than it was. Um, that it's, and, they, and the Roman joke book is really heavily leans on crucifixion in a way that I think nowadays people perhaps wouldn't be so comfortable with jokes about crucifixion, given that people were actually being crucified. So you know, time is a great unmasker of things that change very rapidly about comedy but even place you know the same the, no, no two bits of the UK will necessarily all find or two people find the same thing funny because you're bringing your wealth of experience and all sorts of other things to it and I think I probably can't put it better than The Onion The Onion had a very good article 
oh god about 15 years ago called it was entitled that's not funny my brother died that way and he's uh-huh. sort of explaining oh well, i see you're all enjoying that scene from police academy where somebody's flung off the back of a motorcycle and they get their head stuck in the anus of a horse and then they die but actually that's how my brother died it's quite difficult for me to watch mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's sort of getting at that even like the most basic slapstick which people very often assume is like universally humorous there'll always be somebody who can f- find that not funny because of personal reasons I really like that piece of advice. You can't control events, but you can control your reaction. And how Professor Sophie talked about doing something active, like doing something physical, that uh, makes her feel better. And uh, I'll be honest, I had no clue that your hearing was related to your cardiovascular health. I had no idea. I don't want to brag or nothing. But this past weekend, I actually ran a Tough Mudder with some friends of mine. And this year, I've run a marathon, a half marathon, and a Tough Mudder. And basically, during the Tough Mudder, or right before, I was just like, you know what? I think I'm overrunning. I don't think I like doing this anymore. And uh, and then as I was running the Tough Mudder, I had a lot of fun. And maybe I'm not overrunning. And especially after hearing Professor Sophie talk about cardiovascular health being related to your hearing I don't know why but that's the thing that's like no I'm going to continue doing this I am going to continue doing running in this next section me and Professor Sophie talk about the differences between men and women and speech and how much they talk or if there's a difference at all the information that she threw at me kind of blew my mind because it was the opposite of something I've heard my kind of entire life I don't know when I first heard it but I've always heard it. Before we move forward, I just want to thank whoever left the last review regarding the Beck Hill podcast. It's by someone who called themselves Namaste B slash 7. And the review says, I love her advice. It's simple yet profound. If, like me, you feel that you get sucked into things that you'd rather not be and afterwards feel regret and afterwards regret feeling manipulated, dealing with trolls, internet, and otherwise, this will hold meaning. They talk about self-forgiveness, and who can't use some of that, as well as her time management style. As always, Abigailia makes the time seem to go by quickly. Thank you. And keeps things moving. Thank you again. Together, they make an enjoyable and interesting podcast. Thank you again. I highly suggest it. Um, I think I said thank you enough. But no, seriously, Namaste B slash 7. Thank you so much for leaving that review. And if you're listening to this and you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps kind of bump it up in the iTunes line, if you will. And then we'll get more listeners and we can create a little Namaste Bitches community, which I would be very, very into. Okay, I, you know, I think I've done enough talking. So uh, let's get back to the podcast with Professor Sophie Scott. Going back to your piece of advice, which say, say it one more time. You, you can't control events, but you can control your reaction to them. So d- when, when things, when events are not going your way, do you ever, does your research, because your research <laughs> is what a lot of people would consider entertainment. Does that ever give you comfort <laughs> or is that one of the things you can't control? I have actually found a couple of times um, turning things into 
uh, like a funny story I can use either in a talk or if I'm doing some science stand-up. I've actually found that really is a very, very effective way of feeling like I've got control over something. Um, without endlessly going on about health, I had a I think massive amount of steroids uh, last year. It was just an insane amount of steroids. And I got really excited because I thought they were the ones that might change your external genitalia. And I thought, you know, I'm 48, change the skin as a rest. And anyway, it turned out it was not those sorts of steroids. It was the sort that just give you like overwhelming psychiatric problems. And it was really hard to deal with. Um, so I wrote this whole set about sort of imagining I might grow a penis and then not getting a penis, getting panic attacks. But it was, um, it was, was definitely definitely a strategy for dealing with how unpleasant it was because it was really unpleasant now you know i'm not saying that would work for everybody but it worked for me and then actually doing it on stage while later and making people laugh it felt like i'd won over those stupid drugs you know it was it was a very nice feeling so i mean that's an extreme example but that definitely i find works for me yeah it's strange how some medications like the only way to make you better is by to make part of you worse <laughs> yes. for a little while. Uh, as a as a scientist, do you find it difficult sometimes to go along with modern medicine? Like when they're like, "Yes, take these drugs." I mean, you'll go crazy, yes. but they will fix the problem. Well, they um, I. Scientists can be really awful in terms of starting to say, well, I'd like to see the evidence for that, you know, <laughs> kind of. Um, I certainly, I can remember having a debate with my doctor, <laughs> because the doctor said, oh, I would like to put you on this. He didn't actually use the phrase insane dose of steroids, but I could see it was an insane dose of steroids. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't really want to gain weight and I understand they can make you a bit stressed. He said, well, otherwise I can ingest it di- inject them directly into your ear. And I was like, okay, then, well, I'll, I'll take them orally then rather than the injection into the ear. Um, you know, so definitely I think scientists can be a bit more of a pain to deal with because they, they go, well, I don't know, there was that randomised control trial recently and it didn't work, you know, so... <laughs> and then if you've thought that, it probably won't work, you know, so... You know, the placebo effect is a very powerful thing and sometimes it actually helps to have it on your side. Yeah. But it worked and you feel better now? Uh, no, it was... It didn't work at all. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> but the good thing was, having acknowledged that it didn't work, they took me off them, so that was okay. good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I haven't ended up with the. <laughs> they give you fatty deposits on your face, and I was like, "Why would you?" I got really fixated with this, like examining myself in the mirror all the time. Did like, you get there? No, I didn't. I was like, well, "You know, thinking, how will they tell? Will they be like greater than the already fatty deposits on my face?" What would I, you know? So yes, it was good to at least know that's that's not a thing anymore. Oh. I've got I've got naturally acquired fatty deposits, <laughs> the best kind, as far as as far as I'm concerned. So you do science stand-up? This is not a thing that I knew about you. Well, it's um, there's something that UCL does, University College London, where I'm based, called Bright Club, and they get their academics to do stand-up comedy as a sort of public engagement exercise. So that's that's the stuff. I'm, it's not in any sense stand-up comedy that would be recognised as such by people who actually do it for a living. Um, and the you know the audience know they've got a scientist talking about soil erosion or something. You know, no no one no one's in there any illusion that this is a professional. Well, um, you know, in a comedy club it's always like talking about online dating, soil erosion, like these are just well trodden topics. Here we go again, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's you you do science comedy with that group of people. So how yeah. often are you doing yeah. that? Um, oh god, whenever they ask me, I um I probably I, I probably two or three times a year. It's not. I mean, I've maybe done it thirty times in total. And I do a bit. You know, Robin Ince does stuff. Yeah, scientist. Yeah, I do it there as well. Do you use any of that in your research? Or well, it it was very interesting to me. What it I didn't do this to get into 
another perspective on laughter, but it has given me a whole other like, way of thinking about laughter. So I'm very grateful for this. So I was quite struck when they give you training at UCL. All they train you in is, is microphone technique. Um, like don't take it away from your mouth all the time. Um, or hold, you know, because the audience will work out that you're not a professional of anything if you don't do that. And one of my UCL colleagues was given this really interesting routine about the difference between um, in heterosexual men and heterosexual women, there's a mismatch between the number of sexual partners they both, both groups say they've had. And either one group is lying or there's a group of women who are not getting sampled who have masses of sex with lots of different men. Mm. So she's studying this. And what she's finding is that there is, in fact, a mismatch between what heterosexual men and what heterosexual women consider to be sex. So it's fascinating. And she's got the microphone. She'd be like, well, she touched it, so that counts. You're like, no, 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 tell me. Get the microphone, microphone, back up. And what she was doing was kind of marking, I've got to the end of the sentence by taking the microphone away. Yeah. And we're like, no, no, I need to know. I want to hear you anyway. But also, this is really filthy and I'm enjoying it. So, yeah. you know, it was, um, that's an extreme example. So they train you in that. And they also train you to, you know, put the microphone in the proper place at the end of your set and that kind of thing. And the only other thing they tell you, but they have to tell you, and there's nothing they can do about the fact that you will not pay any attention to that, is to not talk over the laughter. And you can only learn about that sort of thing when you've got an audience in front of you. So the fact that stand-up comedians are doing it all the time and can only really rehearse with an audience there, that's one of the things, one of the many things about stand-up comedy that you can only learn from doing it. Mm-hmm. And I was very struck by that. that and it's, it slowly started to make me realise, again, about this, well, the way audiences behave or don't behave as a group, that they, I kind of thought they sort of sat and emitted laughter and then carried on but if you talk over it they stop laughing because they want to hear what you're saying so you have to give them space and actually if you watch professionals they not only give people space but even like have quite minor cues about now's the time when you can do it you know and that whole kind of subtlety of that sort of interaction I realized it's not just somebody performing on stage and the audience are there it's much more of a dynamic relationship and I'd really like to know more about that relationship and then stop anything being funny for anybody ever again that's my long term aim really really destroy comedy they, <laughs> it's, and the, the whole kind of all that subtlety of the response you know they laugh I, I was talking to somebody who has done a, he's a writer and a stand up and he was saying that once he got an audience up and laughing he could say things that had the structure and shape of a joke that weren't jokes but people would laugh at the right point and he could do it again and they'd laugh again do it a third time they're like no we want you to go back to telling the jokes so we're not going to laugh now you know oh, so it's all that kind of like complexity is really fascinating to me because no one's telling you to do that yeah no one's agreeing okay everyone so when we like it we'll laugh right yeah okay great oh, we're, we're good to go you know that no one that, that doesn't happen um and if people sort of you know will groan or you know sort of have all sorts of you know actually things that um, are very sort of dynamically and spontaneously occurring throughout the audience but sort of leading to that you know much more complex dynamics than I'd assumed so it has been very interesting to me mm. have you gone to pun run I have not gone to pun run what oh. what's pun run oh it's run by Beck Hill and uh it is a night of only pun based jokes and just when we when we do it um, Beck really emphasizes that when you do pun run, a groan is just as good as a laugh yeah. <laughs> because they're puns and it's an audience reaction, and yeah. that's what we want. Yeah. So, anyways, when you said mentioned groans, that just made me think of it. You should check it out. Yeah, I should like do. It. Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. One of the many great things that Beck Hill does. <laughs> um, one of the uh, other TED talks that I listened to 
uh, that you did talked about some of the differences between men and women or the fact that there's not really that many, which kind of shocked me because I feel like my whole life I've heard women talk more, women yeah. gossip more. Yeah. And so talk about your research in that because that, I was like, what? <laughs> well, it, it's kind of like the the absence of it. So I, I study how people deal with speech. I study people speaking and how their brains process it and kind of understanding speech. And, and from that perspective, one of the least interesting things to me about your brain is whether it's in a male or a female body. You know, we, we don't even, we, we don't even look for differences. It's that uninteresting. Whereas, you know, your age, your language experience, your job, these things can have a big effect on how you deal with this stuff that you're listening to. Straightforward sex differences aren't there and and this is in the context where there's also a whole literature as you say that says well men and women have got very different brains that's why we like different things we do different jobs and you know and that explains these huge behavioral differences but i was interested in this because i thought well how big can these differences be if they're not affecting the brain in a way that i can see and i study one of the things that some people think is a big difference in men and women like so the idea is that women have very different language representation from men I've never seen anything like that. So I started looking at the literature in more detail and it turns out it kind of just disappears when you go... So people will make these statements like, um, you know, women talk more than men. And if you look at this, there are people who've done big studies of this and all the studies show, and big meta-analyses these studies show, that there are tiny differences between men and women. So there's a statistically significant difference, but it's the effect size is so small, it means in practice there really is no big difference. Um, the meaningful difference but the difference is in the direction of men talking more than women and in fact it's context sensitive so where you are and how you're talking affects this difference and the biggest difference that you find between men and women when they're speaking the situation in which men say even more than women is when one man is talking to one woman (laughs) you know it's that direct so so you've got this finding and everyone's response to this is just well, that can't be right. And we just carry on. And the same with gossip. So there's, there's a long-standing belief that even, you know, men and women use language very differently and men are going out and sort of commanding people to do things for they are natural leaders and gathering the hunts together. And women are, you know, rolling around by the fire and loving each other because that's their warm nature. And, um, and, and so the women are gossiping because they really have got, you know, nothing else to do with their time. And, and it's simply not true. Men and women gossip. We all gossip. It's the main use of language is to talk about other people. It's, yeah. it's an argument that says that's the sole reason why we evolved it. And um, it may be that sometimes when men do it, we call it networking. We don't call it gossiping, but it's the same thing. And you'll even see the same kind of argument, you know, men being, oh, they're clubbable and affable. What people mean is, you know, they're, they're talking in a friendly, gossipy way, but it's just different if men do it. And this just goes pretty much wherever you look more or less every stereotype you have all the arguments around gaming like uh, computer games like gta being full of misogynistic content and then people say well it's because women don't like playing computer games so they're being written for men and then you look at the data the data tells you the largest group of people who play computer games are women more really? women more women play exactly it's like every stereotype we have is wrong and then people go oh, they look at the games women play and they go well, we don't mean those games <laughs> so we don't they're not computer games if women do them you know it's that it's that ridiculous women have greater sexual responses to stimuli than men really and and everyone just goes mm-hmm, right, yeah and then we just carry on pretending that women are somehow sexually neutral and men and sex is something that gets done to them by men because all the theories are around you know sort of male sexuality and sort of assuming that women sort of women go along with it you know because they're like babies and it, it, the empirical evidence 
it simply goes in the opposite direction. So, you know, it's, it's one of those areas where it's so driven by uh, people's expectations and biases. Are those biases international? Like, I know, like, women talk more than men is definitely something that is uh, a thought in the Western world, but is it as well in the Eastern? Um, there, I can't speak to that in detail, but there's a very good book by Deborah Cameron, who is a, she's a fantastic person to speak to. She, she did a book called um, The Myth of Mars and Venus, um, around these sort of ideas that men and women do things very differently, particularly around language, and she's a linguist. And she's found that historically and geographically, pretty much whatever women do with their voices is considered to be wrong. So they talk too much, or they talk too little, or they speak too coarsely, or they speak too um, mimsily. It, it, it doesn't really matter. Whatever the national stereotype is for women, it will be that they do the wrong thing with their voices. Whereas, in fact, if you look at sort of subcultures where you get, for example, very specific uses of language, um, like, get, say, gangs, what you'll find is that female members of the gangs will be the ones who use the gang-specific language in the most appropriate way because they're marking their membership with the correct use of the language. Interesting. And even down to sort of subtleties of, um, like in schools with very kind of mixed cultures, you'll find, say, white schoolgirls trying to ape or mimic aspects of, say, Jamaican lang- London accents. I can't even start to begin to do this, but what you'll find is that groups of Afro-Caribbean young teenage girls at the same school will speak more like you know, standard white British English when they're around those white schoolgirls to mark themselves as different from them. So, you know, it's really nuanced. Yeah. And if anything, the group of people who move language forward and make changes in language actually are schoolgirls, schoolchildren generally, but there's an argument that says within that schoolgirls are the real sort of changes of language and pushes forward of vogues and all sorts of fashions in how we speak. Why do you think it's schoolgirls specifically? Well, it's certainly school children. School schools are where young people are where language change occurs. Mm-hmm. That's that's just straightforward. Um, now, I don't know the details of this. There's an argument in this, but it's particularly schoolgirls. Why that is, I don't know. And certainly, the, when the, it, the, I it's think called... you'll find, Professor, it's because women talk more than men. <laughs> of course, the boys I, aren't I know because I read that on Twitter like at least four times. But and go on, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's certainly noticeable. Like my, my son goes to school uh, just near uh, King's Cross, and he the, there's a vowel sound in British English, a diphthong i that you get like in like or bike or vibe, and it's gone. It's not going. It's gone from the vocabulary of most of the children in, in my son's school, they go lack and bab or back. Sound it's, like Southern, like U.S. Southern. Yeah, it's, there's, there's some kind of um, Americans, uh, North America's influence coming in there. Now, whether that's coming through Jamaica or perhaps through other aspects, you know, the, you know you're, you're seeing va- you know, the sort of rapid change that goes on all the time, which sometimes reflects immigration sometimes doesn't it's a lot to do with aspiration and you know who you'd like to affiliate with but it's going it's really really extraordinary do you think um, it has something to do with tv um it depends if possibly not actually because you don't hear that accent very often on uk tv okay. but people have shown so um people working in glasgow have shown that young glaswegian teenage girls who like eastenders 
incorporate elements of an East End London accent into their Scottish accent in a way that ones who don't watch East Enders don't do. Interesting. So there is a there's a role for media that that does have a role, and it it comes down to sort of affiliation and and who you'd like to be heard as speaking when you speak you we tend to think of our voices as being very kind of neutral palettes that are somehow just expressing our words but actually we're talking as we would like people to hear us and that varies with context so you said as soon as you started recording i'm going to speak I'm, you can tell because i'm now speaking differently yeah. and all of us do that all the time so that's not that's not like our voices are one constant thing and even and that varies over time so everybody gets posher or when you go back in time listen to a recording of anybody they'll sound posher than they do now just because actually everyone's speaking a little bit differently yeah shifting well when you watch movies from like the 40s like american movies it's totally a different way of speaking and we all accept it as natural in that moment but it's like it's almost like a british accent in some ways like rosalind russell the way she speaks is I mean, it's not a British accent, but it's it's more so than I would ever sound like. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, no, and even if you take somebody, an individual who's been recorded a lot over their lifetime, like the Queen, people have done empirical studies showing that the Queen's English accent has become more um, more like the, the common people, for want of a better phrase, speak, over time. She sounds less posh. That's the Queen, mm-hmm. you know, and she's not exactly being strongly influenced by people around her who talk with uh, a variety of regional English accents. It's just simply because everybody is moving, you know, because the culture is affecting all of us in how we speak. We think of it as being a pretty basic thing, but actually it's always being affected by what you're hearing around you. So it's not intentional by her to speak less posh? Almost certainly not. I mean, you, you, do, you do encounter people who intentionally change their voices. Um, I mean, Margaret Thatcher very famously uh, was... Sort of instructed to lower the pitch of her voice, and one of the problems with poor Margaret Thatcher is you could really hear that it was quite hard work for her. You know, whereas in fact all women do that in the West. Women in the West over the last forty years have really dropped the pitches of their voices, Um, and that seems to reflect women going into the workplace. They're kind of there's lots of things we can't do to mitigate our terrifying femaleness around men. One thing we can do is is speak with much lower pitched voices. So again, if you go back to those old movies, certainly British ones, the, the women are all talking sort of up here, and you pretty much don't hear that nowadays. Mm-hmm. I I am doing it. I'm a low talker. I'm I'm here. I know my voice is much lower than, than the register which I would perhaps you know speak fifty years ago. If you go to parts of the world where women are not integrated into the workplace in the same way, you find huge differences. So in Japan, women speak with much higher pitched voices. And they will speak with yet higher pitched voices if there are men around. And the men do the same thing. The men in Japan speak with a lower pitched voices than, than in England. You know, they're exaggerating the difference. Whereas actually in our culture, we're, we're minimising it with our voices. I just find Professor Sophie's research so freaking interesting. Um, when she talks about the differences between men and women, speech is not really a thing because... Because it's more about how brains react and and gender has little to do with it. But the social uh, norms that have occurred, how women in the West have started to lower their voice in the last 40 years as they've entered the workforce. I I didn't know any of this. And some of this, when we sat down to talk, I knew we were going to discuss. But this was part of the podcast that I just didn't know was going to come up. And I just, oh, I find it so fascinating. Um, If you find it fascinating as well and you like the podcast, maybe share it with someone. I know I'm doing, I feel like I've done it twice, but I'm doing pleading on this podcast. But I just want to get the word out there 
If this is your first time listening to Namaste Bitches, please go check out other episodes. And also, we have a Facebook group called Namaste Bitches Podcast that you can join. And we're trying to create a community forum where we can post different articles and talk about wellness and talk about what's going on in our lives. So if you're into that and you'd like to join it, please go to Facebook group Namaste Bitches Podcast. Moving forward, Sophie and I talk a little bit more about actually what she does in her life, her workout habits, what she does to relax. So it isn't all business. There's a little pleasure in there as well. So yeah, let's get back into it. All right, guys. When you talk to people, do you always have your science brain on? Like, can you have a conversation (laughs) and not be like, well, this is very interesting because the way you speak is... I do. I I have... um, I, I did phonetics when I first started my PhD and that first it was the first time I realised how like kind of gave me a way of thinking about how voices are different from each other and it, it is just interesting I'm, I'm interested in people's voices I like listening to people's voices and sort of thinking about them so that could be why I've ended up studying this scientifically or it may be that I can't turn off being a scientist I think it's just because I find it interesting mm-hmm. what do you do when you're not doing your your research and your science work what do you do um, to relax or to um I like doing things that my son enjoys so I really like going to London Zoo it's probably one of my favorite places in London I've never been oh right it's literally Let, right there I could take you there now I literally <laughs> I'm, I'm a patron I'm a patron of the zoo I can walk you in there what? Right, it's a date I'll say let me we, you have to let us take you but um it we don't have a garden you know we live in central London it's great to have that as a place to go but in terms of like actual hobbies things that I you would count as a hobby I <laughs> this is so sad I exercise mm-hmm. and I really I would miss that now I like I get up very early in the morning and I go out and it's like that is my getting my head clear part of the day I notice it if I haven't had a chance to do it and I like going to comedy and I like thinking about comedy and writing it I do I don't often perform it but I actually like you know I, I enjoy the process of, of, of thinking about comedy writing so probably my main hobbies would be exercise and comedy really those are kind of my main two jobs <laughs> What, a, what type of exercise do you like? You talked about doing a color run yeah. with your amazing son, Hector. <laughs> I, I, I know I don't look like this is going to be my athletic style. I really love running. It's the, it's the thing that works for me. It makes me feel happy. It makes me feel well. I, my, my joints feel good when I've been doing it. And I started... Um, uh, I started getting back into running. Having I bust my Achilles and then I had a baby, so I was off the I was off the map for a long time. And then I thought I could do something about this. My, you know, did you, were you wheelchair bound? Like when oh, you... it was a disaster. It was a that's, the Achilles that's a was awful. It was no, just don't do it. My strong advice: do not rupture your Achilles. It's dreadful. Um, but partly because I was still having problems with it, I thought I've got to get back into exercise, and mm-hmm. I worked my way back to running over like past three years, really. And now, since November last year, I've been doing this streak running where you have to run every day, and it's like there aren't many ways I can find my personality failings and turn them into positives. But I have this really irritating, like completist tendency. I've got to, you've got five out of these six things. I've got to get the sixth thing. I've, you know, I'm, oh. I've seen this film three times, but this is its last week of the cinema. I've got to go because it's its last week. I, you know, it's that kind of thing. And and that, I, you know, and I used to run like two, three times a week. Maybe I wouldn't run at all all week. Now I've got to run every day. Yeah. I'm anxious if I haven't done it. So it like takes that's all the... That's yeah. great, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's why I like doing uh, races is because it gives me a due date. 
Yeah. Like, like we talked before, I just finished a Tough Mudder. No big deal. And, uh, but in order, it's kind of the only reason why I'll exercise anymore, mm. even though I really, it makes me feel better, but to be like, oh, I have a big thing to do. I better get ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, I think basically whatever it takes to give you a reason to do it, because I was read this really good book that said, um, if there was a drug you could take that could do for you what exercise does, we would all be on it. It's that simple. Wow, well said. You know, and it does because it it's it can help with maintaining weight. It's fantastic for joints, particularly running, and fantastic. People for... always say the opposite with yep. running. When I started running, especially coming from a yoga background, when I got trained as a yoga instructor, uh, if you said you were a runner. To, to my little yoga call, it's the equivalent of saying you smoke a pack a day. Yeah. 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 So, But it's actually quite good it's for your actually joints. the opposite. People who run um, have fewer problems with their knees. They need knee replacements at lower rates and at older ages. Really? It's There aren't many things you can point at human beings and say, human beings were designed to do that. That is something that is part of the evolutionary pressures upon why we look the way, the, the way we do one of the few things that we were designed to do is run. Mm -hmm. We were endurance hunters and we still are, you know, in lots of parts of the world and not many things on the order of days can outpace a human. Um, you know, we're meant to be thin runners. I'm managing the running, not the thin, but you know, that's, that's the, that's the thing. And it's, um, so actually it's what your legs are designed for. Yeah. It's what your build is designed for. It's one of the reasons we've ended up this shape is so that you can run. So I can't think of a single reason not to, other than, you know, the fact that you might feel a bit ridiculous tooling along Farringdon Road at 9.30, which is why I get up at six. <laughs> Do, uh, before you found running to be your favourite uh, type of exercise, did you play with other types? And, like, like did it take you a while to find your, your it exercise? Totally. Well, I was, I was absolute, absolutely the sort of person at school who was the last person you would ever pick for any sport. Me I mean, I was too. just the worst. I would stand, like, bemused while balls bounced off my forehead, you know. I was just, just a disaster. And I got into running when I was doing my PhD um, because a friend of mine got very evangelical about it. And he was so... Like, oh, this is such a wonderful thing. I was like, yeah, I will try that. And I really found it, I, I fe you know, I felt the benefit. And then I moved to Cambridge where there's nothing else to do. There's literally nothing else to do but run. And it's really flat. So you can run for miles. It's great. Um, then I moved back to London and it kind of just fell off a bit. And I went to the gym and I do that kind of thing. But I, and then I, you know, had this accident and then I had a baby. So I'd really gone from being you know at the end of the 90s like running half marathons to by you know within eight years doing absolutely nothing and so it's been interesting to build back up from that but also really rewarding mm -hmm. I, I don't care that I'm really slow I don't care that I don't run very far every day it doesn't matter you know the fact is that I'm doing it and I've, I'm really enjoying it so that's such a great attitude because I feel like I have fallen into this trap and I, I feel a lot of friends have is when you start doing something you it's all or nothing so you if you're gonna run then you have to be able to run a nine minute mile immediately yeah. and and that's just not how it works yeah uh but yeah that's so cool that you're able to just take it 
And you do it every day at <laughs> every six day. in the morning. And I, I joined this Facebook group because these people, it's called, it was called Advent Running. You were supposed to just do it between for the period of Advent. And I joined the Facebook group. And it was really. Advent's coming up, I'm joining. <laughs> well, what's great about it is they, everyone, a lot of people carried on. And if it had been like a really miserable day and I was no question, horrible weather, I'm really tired. If I wasn't doing this, there's no way I'd go out for a run. I really like kind of coming back and just getting onto the Facebook thing and saying, oh, I wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for you guys. You guys, but these total strangers, I have no idea who they are. You know, I will never ever meet any of them. They're all off running ultra marathons. They don't care mm-hmm. that I'm, you know, I'm 48 and I run really slowly. They're all like, yeah, that's brilliant. It's so lovely. Yeah. So it's been a kind of, it's been a very positive experience in that, you know, I feel better for it and I've got more energy and, you know, I'm really enjoying it. But also it's been a real revelation to me about the kind of power of, completely theoretical groups of people who are actually supporting you i mean i'm guessing they're real people not bots i think they are real people but it almost doesn't matter <laughs> yeah you know that you just get that kind of contact that from these people who've got no vested interest in you at all and you've got it doesn't matter at all that the fact that they would you they, they don't mind you saying oh hey i did this thing and they're like yeah you did and you're there to say yeah because when they say something you know it's just it's really positive aspect of social media i would never have imagined yeah. existed or would be possible I read your paper on uh, social media and research and stuff oh cool which uh, I, you know as a comedian it's it's all about trying to like get the perfect joke in the retweets that I never really considered how social media benefits uh, scientists and stuff like that and the idea of live tweeting lectures and stuff like that because <laughs> well, uh, again as someone who does public speaking someone's on their phone it's like get off your phone and the fact that you <laughs> encourage your students to live tweet I'd be like what are you doing what are you? just live tweeting the performance <laughs> In, in a scientific talk, you would never mind if people wrote down notes. Of course, yeah. And my feeling, in fact, the reason why I started live tweeting originally was because when I came back from maternity leave, I would go to talks and then just fall asleep because somebody's muttering away, the room is dark, it's warm, and I'm not immediately having to do anything. So I found I had to keep notes to keep myself awake. And then when I got onto Twitter, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to do this on Twitter because then I'll have to really make those notes count. Mm. Other people might read them. You know, I'm going to have to get it right. And it really made me pay attention. And I had a little 50-50 effect of like people going, oh, I love this. Oh, I never get to go to talks. Now I feel like I've been there. And other people saying, if you don't stop doing this, I'm never going to follow you again. I can't stand it. You know, <laughs> and then I was trying to find the hashtags that people could filter me out because, you know, all my non-academic friends were just going, this is a nightmare. Shut up about some Swedish study of old people. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, f- I found it personally quite useful. And there are some people who find it quite valuable. And certainly um, my, my students... It was just that I noticed if they'd, once I started making them go, they're supposed to go to the lecture, these weekly seminars anyway. And when I started making them live tweet them, I noticed that they asked many more questions because it was just making them engage and think more because you have to. If there's a drug you could take that would do what exercise does, we'd all be taking it. I think that's pretty true. Um, I think this streak running that Professor Sophie's doing is so cool. She gets up at 6 a.m., 6 a.m. every day to do that. What a commitment, along with her job and being with her family and all that sort of thing. And I just think it's great. I think workout challenges are really great. That's one reason why I started training for marathons and stuff, because they give me due dates. I've also uh, done challenges in yoga, like 30-day challenges and stuff. 
And maybe we should do another challenge with Namaste Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We did one once with a meditation. I don't know how many of you guys have kept up with that, but it was a lot of fun. Maybe we should do a workout one, maybe not necessarily running. Uh, let's get this out, and I'll do some thinking of how maybe we can do a little uh, exercise, streak running-ish challenge uh, all together, all of us. Um, moving forward, we get into the last bit. Uh, Sophie and I talk a little bit more about running, and she also mentions where you can read her stuff. Like I said before, she's got TED Talks. If you Google Professor Sophie Scott or YouTube her, you can find all of them there, and they're really fascinating. And, uh, yeah, let's, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit more with Sophie. Going back to running, sorry, I sometimes yeah. skip around. Um, was that one of the things that got you through? Was that something you control could control when events were going a little out Definitely. of control in your life? Well, I, I mean, actually, this is this is absolutely true. Um, when my father was dying, um, and it was, oh, it was it was grueling. It was really hard on him. Um, I was out in the middle of France, not a place where people go running. If you go running where my parents live, people assume you're being chased by something. And <laughs> literally, people ask if you're okay. Um, and I had never been running around there for years and years and years. And I had a pair of running shoes with me. And I wanted to hurt. I wanted to feel pain. Mm-hmm. And I took myself up running up this stupid hill. And I hadn't been out running full stop on anything for, you know, years. And I did hurt. And I kind of felt like I, you know, going to... It was a way of getting through a very difficult emotional time. Or sort of, I don't know, it, 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 it helped... That on that journey, I can't put it better than that. And then it carried on after he died. It became like a, I found it away. And this mostly just going to the gym and running on the treadmill, like starting to get on top of stress. But I was still doing it in a very patchy way until really, you know, like, well, working up. Let's rephrase it. What I was doing was finding a path back to fitness. You know, so in the past, you know, I made my lab all go on a run about 18 months ago in the zoo. <laughs> I'm really harsh. I didn't make them, but many of them chose to do his 10k run, and um, and that was that was the first time I'd run continuously. I did like run walking and that kind of thing, yeah, you know, um, for a very long time. And that then it felt like it was I was back. You know, uh, this is something I can get back into my life. And then more recently, starting the the, the sort of uh, streak running, the uh, daily running. Then I, you know what, I'm in a good place with this. This is working, you know. And I'm not just doing it because I want my hips to hurt. I'm doing it because I feel really good. Yeah. Uh, when, one time, me and my sister, my younger sister, years ago, uh, went running. It was started raining. We were in uh, Florida, and we kind of like just started to run through the rain. And she explained running the the best way I've ever heard. She goes, "I don't run much, but I really like it because it's like screaming with your body." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely get that. And there are times when you do it, and it absolutely has that quality. Like I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get through this. It's gonna be painful, and it's gonna be worth it. Yeah. Do so with streak running. You wake up at six a.m. every day. Yeah, ten to six, and then I lie in bed, go, "What was I thinking?" <laughs> I get up at six. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then just go off and tool around. Do I you think. have a set time limit or do you just go until you're done? You're supposed to do it uh, for at least a mile. That's to sort of make it count. You do a minimum of a mile. What I normally do is between two to three miles because I've got I've got to get back um, to make sure my son's up and fed and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of at school. So I have to be back 
at a certain time. Uh, yeah, so what I tend to do is run a route that takes about 35 minutes and I'm feeling really like I could move things around a bit. I'll go for a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the, the main constraint is that. And actually one of the nice things in the summer holidays was having the school run taken off and you could do slightly more interesting runs or take a little bit more time over it and does Hector go running with you often he has a couple of times um but he I think now we did the the night run the the color run he really got the bug so I'm jealous I want to do that you 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 would absolutely rule it it's just it's really good fun had a very good atmosphere and I my son had got the idea from school that he was slow and no good at running and and, you know, and people you know people used those words at him and I was like you know it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you're not fast what matters is that you can do it at all and in fact that you enjoy it and come on let's go and find a way of enjoying it so it was it was perfect and yeah. to do it as a family and <laughs> come back all covered in paint at 11 o'clock at night it was just brilliant oh that's so cool <laughs> and then the, your other hobby is watching and writing comedy yeah how um, often how often do you find yourself writing and how often do you find yourself attending comedy events uh attending comedy events is whenever i feasibly can do you know I'm a, I'm a working parent and tom works in cambridge so i can't be out every night but um good thing there's that comedy club for kids yeah exactly well that is <laughs> comedy club for kids is a major source for me of yeah. finding new people that i then go and sort of like find out out in the rest of the world yeah. um but um yeah so that's a as as often as i can do kind of thing we, with comedy club for kids being pretty near the top of the list actually um and then the the writing is it is entirely opportunity based so whenever I get the chance to do something and I, I, I normally I, I'm normally working on something I've got like something at the back of my mind I'm working on because people they know I'm not a comedian they know I'm a scientist no one no one's under any illusion so um, I, I'm pretty much entirely write it around scientific topics mm-hmm. so I find that quite helpful when I'm thinking about you know sometimes it helps me thinking about the science as well it's, it's just a it's been a very interesting discipline in thinking about how you would explain things and talk about things that's not how I would normally do talks or present work so it's it's uh I think it's made my scientific talks better mm-hmm. having done this having even just approaching it this way is there do you have a blog or do you have anywhere where people can check out your um I I, I do have a blog it's very very intermittently kept up and very very poorly more recently I've been doing a writing for um Standard Issue, which okay. is Sarah Millican's uh, magazine, and I've I've done some scientific writing, but also just some more general kind of writing for that, um, and that's that's been interesting because I haven't that's sort of given me a, a an opportunity to write, which is actually uh, you know about oh, uh, you know in, entirely uh, well certainly things that aren't directly associated with my science, although I do sometimes write about that for them as well. Mm-hmm. I've done a few things for The Guardian, but The Guardian pretty much always asked me to do exactly the same thing, which is talk about laughter. So yeah. if you'd like to see me write the variation to the same article, find me on The Guardian. <laughs> Just find the first article, change a few <laughs> words, and be like, there we go. <laughs> Here's my back's information. Yes. Very cool. Um, well, we're pretty much at an hour right now. Um, what is the best way for people to find you to get... If people, like, you're pretty active on Twitter, um, so it's at... Prof- it's just um, at, at Sophie Scott, all That's... one word. I was an early adopter of Twitter, so uh, I'm not 
I'm not quite at Sophie, but I'm, there are many. There's a very famous Sophie Scott in Australia, and she is Sophie Scott underscore two. Because really? I, I was already there as Lucky Sophie Scott. So that's the best way to follow your research and your... Yeah, okay. and I, I do I do primarily do, use Twitter for work. I use it to, you know, talk about our research or other sort of stuff. So it's, uh, you know, you won't be subjected to too many hilarious stories about <laughs> things my son's done. Do you do, um, do you do any public speaking? Like, that's not just at UCL, but that lay people can go see? Um, I do quite a lot of things with um, skeptics in the pub. Skeptics in the pub. Um, uh, I'm aware, as I say that, they've sent me several emails recently which I haven't replied to, but that's that's where I do kind of more discursive things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> quite often that, the sex differences talk is one I quite often give there. Um, and it's like a lot of scientists, it's pretty much uh, an as and when thing. So, And that's one of the reasons why I use Twitter is to, when there is something coming up, I tend to discuss it there. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I really I, enjoyed it. I've I, just gone on and on. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's exactly. <laughs> the less I talk, the better it is. So thank you so much. And can you, I feel like I, I wanted to get so much into your research that we didn't get to talk too much about your piece of advice, but I really did like it. So can you just repeat it one more time? You can't always control events, but you can control your reaction. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on, Professor. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. So that's it. That's this episode with Professor Sophie Scott. I'm a huge fan of hers. I hope you are as well. And I love that she took her nine-year-old son out on a color run. Her and her family did that together. I think that helps when you're getting active to do it with people. Uh, Like I said, I ran a Tough Mudder this weekend. Did I mention I ran a Tough Mudder? And I ran it with uh, some really great pals of mine. And that's kind of, you know, I did struggle in some parts, but that's what made it really fun was running it with people and it's the first time I had ever done an event with other people and oh my god it's so much more fun that way. Uh, Please follow Professor Sophie on Twitter at Sophie Scott. Of course this will be in the show notes. Keep an eye on the Namaste Bitches podcast Facebook group because I'll be posting us a challenge very soon. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well at Abigailia you want to see me do stand-up comedy all my dates are on abigailia.com again follow professor sophie at sophie scott thank you so much for listening guys have a beautiful day i'm inspired i'm gonna go for a run enjoy everything you're gonna do namaste